Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. In 1973, Arthur Brown became a copyboy at the New York Daily News. 44 years later, he's the editor-in-chief and publisher of New York City's hometown newspaper. Politico calls Brown the tortured heart and soul of the Daily News. In the past four decades, he has covered the city's most compelling stories. As a reporter, as a columnist, as an investigative reporter, as a city editor as an editorial page writer and also editor of the editorial page, as assistant managing editor, as managing editor, and now, finally, as the editor-in-chief. In 2007, he won a Pulitzer Prize for 13 separate editorials that exposed the devastating health problems resulting from the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center. His books, I Koch, that's Irving Koch, on the late mayor Edward I. Koch, and One Righteous Man, which is Sam Battle and the Shattering of the Color Line in New York City's Police Department. Both of those books are must-reads for anyone interested in New York City life and its history. Arthur, your philosophy of life and journalism was shaped, we believe, by an incident that occurred when you were 9, 10, or 11 years old, growing up in Freeport, Long Island. A story about your mother's missing $20 bill. Tell us about it. It was a story about my mother's missing $20 bill and a story about the racism of the time. Freeport was a uh, village on and is a village on the south shore of Long Island. At the time, it was racially segregated. The uh, east side of Main Street uh, was African-American. The west side of Main Street was white. And we were instructed, we were inculcated with the idea that never would you cross to the east side of Main Street. Um, this was a, an atmosphere of um, accepted racism that, of course, as a, as a boy, I didn't understand. It was just the way life was. What did your parents say about that? We never really talked about it, except my mother was a woman who would not tolerate um, any um, disrespect, any inequality, she was, uh, there was something in her that um, uh, she wouldn't accept it. Um, but in terms of the $20 bill, it was the summer. Uh, I was in my backyard. I was actually working on building a playhouse, a clubhouse, when she called me and said that I was to go to the supermarket um, to buy the groceries. I had a bicycle with a newspaper carrier's basket in the front. She gave me the shopping list plus $20 told me to, you know, to uh, go to the store and told me, bring back the change. And $20 was a lot of money then, particularly for a family that uh, had experienced unemployment. We were not um, any, in any way, shape, or form well-to-do. Um, I did the shopping. I got to the checkout line, and I didn't have the $20. It was lost. I couldn't find it. I had to leave the groceries. Now I had to go home and face my mother, and I was afraid. So I came up with a story to... Um, hope that I would not get in trouble. And my story was that I had been robbed of the $20. Now, to make that credible, and somehow I understood that um, if I said it was a white kid in the neighborhood, they wouldn't believe it or they'd question it. 
But if I said it was a black kid, I somehow understood that that would be more credible. So that's what I said. I said that I'd been uh, robbed by a black kid as I went to uh, the supermarket. My mother called the police. The police took me around the village, particularly into the African-American areas, asking me to see if I could find um, this supposed robber. Of course, I, I couldn't, and I knew better even then not to point anybody out that I, I figured, yeah, I can just skate by, you know, holding fast to this story. When I got home, the police dropped me off. I don't think they believed my story, but I went back to uh, my friends out in the backyard, and lo and behold, my younger brother, I see him running across the backyard saying, Mommy, Mommy, look what I found in the backyard, and he's got the $20 in his hand. Uh, he goes into the house, and I know, you know, I can't get to him before he goes in the house. And the next thing I know, my mother is roaring out of the back door across the back you know, off the back stoop and um, takes me uh, by the hair, drags me all over the backyard, drags me into the house, wailing me for having done that. Um, and she um, directs me to go to the police station on my own, ride my bike there, walk in and tell the cops what I'd done. And you said? I did it. What, I, did, you, what did you tell them? I walked, first I thought when I got to the door, should I go in? And so I try to make up a story that... And I knew better. I, I went in and I told them that I had made it up, um, that it had never happened. And I don't remember exactly what they said. They looked like are about 100 feet tall up on the desk of, of this police station. Um, they gave me a stern, you know, talking to. They didn't raise the issue of race. They, that didn't come in that I had accused a black kid of doing this. White cops. White cops. Um, so, um, so they gave me the talking to and I went home. The incident passed, but I knew from that day, it's just something I learned that I would never um, lie again, that I would try to be honest in everything that I did. And I carry that story and that experience to this day. It, it was very formative for me about integrity and honesty, and um, partly because it was it just made it worse. I just realized that it was just going to make everything worse if you lie. And um, I also began to recognize that you have to take responsibility for what you do. And I set out to do that even from that day. Did you have any black friends at the time? Uh, there were one or two black um, children in my grammar school class. One. There was one. That was all that um, I had in terms of African-American friends. Did you tell them what happened? I did not, no, no. And they weren't, it was just a classmate. It was not something, we didn't play with that kid. That kid would live on the other side of town. And so, um, you know, he, he would not be invited to our baseball games or to our parties or whatever. That was just a separate society. What did your father say? I don't remember my father. I don't remember that. I, I'm sure it was not a um, pleasant conversation. I just know what happened with my mother. And it stayed with you forever? It did stay with me, yes. Yeah. And at that point, you weren't exactly um, enthusiastic about becoming a journalist. You didn't I had know no what, idea about any of that. spell journalism, probably. I had no idea about any of that. I was just a kid playing. Well, these days, you seem to have a... Um, an unpleasant relationship, the best way to describe it, with a guy named Donald Trump, who's now the president. It's and, uh, purely professional. Purely professional. 
I want to read one of your professional pieces of, uh, of work on how you feel about them. You said, as an old school at a Brooklyn, Queens real estate developer could be, could be in post-World War II in New York City, family patriarch Fred Trump gave his son, I added that in, Donald Trump, his start in life. But as close to a snake in nature and look as a human could be, it was lawyer Roy Marcus Cohn who taught Donald Trump how to live. And this is what he said. Abuse the legal system to routinely cheat people. Dodge paying taxes through the use of, and this is to be polite, inventively aggressive techniques. Exploit falsehoods and innuendo to achieve his goals. For three decades, ending with his death in 1986, Cohn was New York and America's most famous and infamous attorney, and he was the major mentor, it seems, to a guy named Donald Trump, now President Trump. You ever think about that? I do think about that. Um, In the um, late 1970s, I worked on an investigative series about Roy Cohn. And, the, and we, we looked into Roy Cohn's business interests, business practices, um, relationships with powerful people. And what became clear was that in that time, Roy Cohn um, stiffed everybody uh, he could um, out of uh, payments for anything, whether it was painting his house or mowing his lawn, whatever it was, he wouldn't pay. So he stiffed everybody. Um, he, um, was, um, he had no relationship with the truth. He would say, you know, whatever his tax issues, uh, he was just a professional at not paying taxes. He claimed not to have any income at all that, um, the law firm that he was associated with did not pay him a salary. According to Roy Cohn, the law firm just paid his expenses to be Roy Cohn. So he was audited every year for year after year after year after year. Um, just a notorious um, tax um, avoider, if not then deadbeat, which is probably the more accurate term. So if you take all of that, and um, he meets, uh, let's uh, step back a second, he meets um, uh, Donald Trump when Donald Trump is a young developer. He's just getting started in Manhattan. And he also had built a reputation as being a chief aide to the late Janitor Senator Joe McCarthy. That was Roy Cohn, right? He, right. he whispered in uh, Joe McCarthy's ear through all the notorious... Notorious hearings. So, red baiting hearings. Yes, he was. Um, he, he was that. He was a, um, he was a uh, closeted uh, gay who um, spoke um, horribly about um, um, homosexuals. But in any case, um, Roy Cohn uh, becomes Donald Trump's lawyer and mentor in the late 1970s as, as Trump is be- beginning his real estate career. And they stayed close for many years. And um, I believe that um, Roy Cohn taught Donald Trump how to be Donald Trump, at least in business and, um, uh, and, and, and how to carry himself um, in life. And um, I believe that America is um, living with the consequences now. Which are? Which is that, you know, we have a president who um, his record before he got into office in terms of uh, fair dealing with uh, people with whom he was doing business was horrible, um, who clearly doesn't want anybody to know about his taxes. So there's, there's an issue there. And um, who um, 
often has only a very passing familiarity with uh, the truth. With the truth, something that journalists uh, like to tell a lot, especially when, when we all believe that there's no such thing as fake news when we're writing it or publishing it. No question. You're listening to Conversations with Alan Wolper on WBGO.org. Our guest, as you've been listening, is Arthur Brown, editor-in-chief and publisher of the New York Daily News. When you decided, when you were 22 years old, I think, way, way back in 1973, mm-hmm. that you wanted, to, you wanted to end your wayward ways and take a job for $119 a week. Correct. As a copy boy, and you're editing me, I'm watching you, and you're, I always feel like if I make a mistake, I'm going to be in trouble. Is that you, how you will worry? be, Alan. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Making sure you got the coffee, and, and you also were told that there was no way you'd ever become a reporter, because copy boys never became reporters, right? That era, I was told, it passed. But it didn't bother me, because I went to the Daily News um, simply to learn how a, new, a big city newspaper operated. I didn't have aspirations to be a journalist. Um, let me just go back a little bit. I was in the Daily News City Room when I was eight years old. Um, I, my grandfather was one of um, Captain Patterson, the founding uh, founder of the Daily News, one of his early employees on the production side. My two aunts worked in the what was called then the women's department of the Daily News. I had an uncle who was in the on the production of the magazine. Right, so. The Daily News was in my household, right? And um, I also had an, an uncle who I adored. He's just a really snappy um, uh, guy, old-school Italian guy from Brooklyn. And I smoked cigars, wore, you know, fedoras and stuff, and I, he took me to the racetrack, taught me how to gamble. Um, he told me one point, he, he did lighting for Movie Tone News. He told me when I was a kid, he said, you know, you want to have a good life, you want to have a good job, you want to have the guys who have fun, be a reporter. That's what he told me. That stuck with me. But when I got out of college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And in the meantime, I thought, well, why not I go do that? Let me see what a copy boy, let me see what a, daily, a newspaper does. Boston College. I went, got out of Boston College. I had never worked on a school newspaper. I didn't have anything to do with journalism at all. So um, I, I saw the, um, the uh, old gruff guy named uh, Quinn who uh, said, what are, you, what are you doing here? Why don't you go down to Wall Street and, you know, um, be a bond trader or something. I said, maybe I'll do that. I just want to know. And make newspaper- money. Yeah. I just want to know how a newspaper works. Um, they, a lot of high school kids and college kids were doing it. I said, I, you know, I, I'm out of college. I'll sharpen pencils better than they do. I'll carry papers better than they do. Um, and how, what's your turnover? He says, well, they, they usually say a, a year. I said, that's perfect. I only want to be here for a little while. Right. So he called me that, um, that afternoon and he said, I have a job for you. It's, um, office boy in the promotion department. I said, what, what is the promotion department? He says, well, we do things like um, the Golden Gloves. We do the Harvest Moon Ball, which is a dance contest that Daily News run. Charities. It's the promotional events, that the goodwill that they... And he said, if you do it, maybe in 25 years, you could be head of the promotion department. And here's the naivete of youth. I said, well, you know what? I really don't take this wrong. I just, that's not what I aspire to you really ought to give that job to somebody who wants to be head of your promotion department. <laughs> and there was silence, and he said, all right, just come in here, you know, five to one Tuesday. You're, you're a copy boy. Get out of here, kid. Yeah, right. But you had some uh, wonderful stories that I think you could tell. Let's see. Let's 
take you through some of your life. You were born in Brooklyn. I was born in Bay Ridge, 7502 Ridge Boulevard. I apartment also, I also spotted something. There was one point where you left the news for a moment and you took the uh, the front page of, of the Goodbye to the Yankee Clipper, Jordan Maggio. Were you a Yankee fan? Oh, I was Brooklyn? always a Yankee fan. You Absolutely. Were. Yeah. Well, I moved out of Brooklyn when I was two and a half. So my parents took me out of Brooklyn. Um, the Dodgers were, um, you know, what is it, 1955, 56? They left. So I was not um, I was not a Dodger inculcated in the Dodgers when I was growing up. I was inculcated in the Yankees. There was no Mets. And the, and the Yankees of that day, it was Maris, I mean, Mantle. Like first base was Moose Scourin, Bobby Richardson, Tony Kubek. Uh, Cleet Boyer, Elston Howard was uh, behind the plate. Um, you know, uh, eventually Roger Maris well. was sent to Mickey Mantle, Hector Lopez, right? So you were you were team. totally. I was into it, right? And uh, you've and, been, of course, Daily News is always being attacked, except these days for being too much of a National League newspaper. We know that. That's not true. Not true, right? No, not anymore. No, not for a while. And then you went to, uh, why'd you go to St. You went to St. John's Law School? I went to St. John's Law School. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I, um, so I applied to law school while I was working as a copy boy. And um, I began to like uh, what I saw of the uh, working on a newspaper. And at that time, that was just a, that city room was so filled with characters and so filled with swagger. It was just intoxicating. Like? Excuse me? Who was there? Oh, um, well, you know, Bill Gallo was there, the cartoonist. cartoonist. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there were old school rewrite pe people. Uh, Henry Lee was just a fantastic rewrite person. The, um, the editors were larger than life figures. And um, it was a, um, just a, an intoxicating atmosphere for a young guy. And working as a copy boy, because I uh, was a little bit older and because I would um, dress, you know, for uh, wear a jacket and a tie, they would send me out with the photographers. So when you go with the photographers at that time, they had to return the film to the, um, you know, to the office. You know, you go to um, one night, it's a presidential press conference. Another night, it's a murder it's the, you know, Frazier Ali fight at the Garden. It's the Knicks. It's the Rangers. It's all around the city. And it's just, the, it was the greatest job for um, a young person. And suddenly you were thinking, and suddenly maybe. Thinking, okay, maybe. Let yeah. me see. Let me see. So I apply to law school. And um, I get into law school. I, I pick one that um, uh, had both a day session and a night session. Um, I got a full scholarship to law school. So I said St. John. So I went there. And um, I got in and was promoted to reporter about the same time. So my first um, semester of law school, I worked full-time during the day. And then, I mean, uh, I went to law school full-time during the day and then did um, full-time reporting at night. And your first big story? Um, my first big story, well, I guess it was... Um, Beyond the, you know, the, the standard night rewrite type things that we'd be doing, running a lot on. You know what the danger of this is? What's that? We're living in the digital world. We are. Back and then, there was nothing like that. You and I are both speaking a different language. You no question. That? So we, everything was on we telephones. We should probably have something at the bottom so people could read what we're talking right. about. Everything was by telephone. There was no internet. There was no computers. There's, you know, you wrote on typewriters. And um, I think one of the, the, um, the first... 
big stories. There was some large event. I forget what it was that happened. There was a a fire of some kind. Um, oh, no, it was a transit issue. There was a transit issue with fire in the subway. And um, I was assigned to cover that at night. And one of the things that I did was I, um, I called all the hospitals. What do you have? All the emergency rooms, how many people come in? And I, I wrote up a tally of it. And, um, you know, my count, the next day, it was on the front page of the Daily News. That became the official count of New York City. And I thought, wait a minute, that was just me calling the, <laughs> calling the emergency rooms, right? Um, Suddenly you're a historian. Yeah. Another, um, really, uh, when I got to be, when I was promoted to reporter, a real old school um, city editor named Mike Clendenin called me in. And he said, I want you to run through brick walls. That's one. Two, I never want to have to skin back on the number of dead in a story. Meaning, um, he said, you can always go up in the number of people killed in an incident, but you never want to go down in the number of people killed. So if you say 10 and it turns out to be eight, you look dumb. He said to me, if you're ever in a circumstance where many people have been killed, I want you to count the bodies. I want you to get in the ambulance and count the bodies if you have to do that. I was in Queens, in the Queens office one afternoon. There was a, um, a report came over the radio that there was a plane crash at Kennedy Airport. So I jumped in my car, got there before the um, emergency personnel were there. It was an Eastern Airlines jet that was landing. And there was just me and the airplane in the field. And um, so I was told to count the dead. So that's what I did. I walked out into the field. Um, it was just uh, short of the airport. And I counted the bodies, all the torsos. And then I was able to run to a phone, call in and tell them that um, I had counted, I think it was 77 bodies. And this is, you know, right on the first edition deadline uh, for the paper that would be out at night. We used to distribute at night, and people would come to the delis and newsstands to get the paper at night. So uh, at first, the rewrite person that I was giving this information to said, um, no, no, the plane was taking off. I said, no, it was landing. I'm here. It landed. And I can tell you it hit certain light stanchions, and there's 77 people dead. He said, we don't have that there. I said, well, this is what's here. And I said, why don't you connect me to Mike Clendenin? He got, he got on for me. I said, you told me to count the dead. I counted the dead. That's all we have. And um, we got onto the streets with the uh, paper by, you know, 8 o'clock at night or so that had that information, which is, a, you know, at the time, it was an enormous scoop for, you know, for us. And um, there you were, counting bodies. You never thought you'd do that. Excuse me? You never thought you'd do that. Did no, you? I didn't. I had, no, I had no clue, but that was... That was the level of reporting that was expected, and you were you were expected to get it. What, whatever it was, you were expected to get it. And, you know, I, I did everything I could to get whatever the information was all the time. At some point, you decided to get married, have a family. I don't know what, what a wife would say about that kind of life. Well, um, What did she say? What did well, she why say? Why did she marry you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> we were um, high school sweethearts. I met her, I was 16, I was walking to driver's ed in my local town, I didn't go to the local high school, I went, I was in Freeport, as I told you, um, I commuted into Brooklyn to a Jesuit boys' school called Brooklyn Prep, and uh, I met her walking to driver's ed. 
And you'll finish that story in a second after I tell the world that I'm Alan Wolper and you're there listening to Conversations with Alan Wolper on WBGO.org. Our guest, as you've been hearing, is Arthur Brown, the editor-in-chief and publisher of the New York Daily News, or as my mother used to say, the Daily News. Life is uh, quite different these days in the digital world, isn't it? Wildly different, wildly different in how you gather information and the speed with which you have to disseminate the information. And your wife, we, your wife wasn't a journalist, was she? Or was she, she had um, was been she? a um, researcher reporter at Newsweek magazine. And she, um, first in the business department, and then um, she was uh, Pete Axtelm, who was the big sports writer at the time. She was his researcher reporter till uh, we had our um, second kid. And she left then the paid workforce. Um, eventually, um, you know, after we had our fourth, um, she went back uh, into the work uh, place. And she's now the director of a public library on Long Island. You've probably more than most people uh, have lived, I mean, really lived with some of the great journalists in this in this city. I, I think so. I crossed paths with um, many of them. Uh, many of them came through the Daily News. Um, you know, um, Breslin, Hamill, Gail Collins, Bob Herbert, Juan well, Gonzalez. They were all, you know, part of the Daily News. Mike McAlary is part well, of the Pete, Daily News. Pete Hamill 1 and 2, right? Pete Hamill 1 and 2. That's correct. Um, Pete's brother. Uh, yes. And the um, Marsha Kramer was on Channel 2, was, um, you know, my city hall bureau chief. Adam Nagurney, who became the, um, you know, a uh, star political reporter for the Times. Um, I hired him as the Daily News uh, Albany bureau chief. How do you deal with people like that? Oh, he's great. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, I'm talking about all the all these all these characters. Yeah, well, you know, everybody you get you <laughs> you have to have high tolerance for eccentricity and egos, and but it's all fun. It it was all terrific, and you you use tortured. I, I don't I don't accept that. I you know that's not. Um, I never felt that way in any way, shape, or form. Most difficult story in Arthur Brown's career. Most difficult story. This is getting, this is, we don't, that's a, we don't have an hour here. Too that's long. a hard question to answer. Um, I can tell you that um, I, uh, there's a, I've said this before, that there were, there were errors. I made errors along the way. And um, in one case, I named a particular judge as among the worst judges in New York City. And um, it wasn't justified. Um, later I, uh, you know, I apologized to him. I, you know, th th there were errors, um, but I never, you know, I never felt that a story was particularly difficult. There were sensitive stories. There were stories you had to be incredibly careful about. Um, and anything that had to do with race in particular, um, and a good way to, to get to a book that you wrote. Well, eventually, you know, I did, I did have, get to we, write the book. Because we don't but, have a lot of time to talk yeah. about Sam Battle and the battle that he had right. trying to convince an all-white police department that maybe it's time you let me in and all yeah. my friends and colleagues. And yeah, 1911. Follow. 1911. And, I mean, the only way I got to do that book was that I discovered that 
1949, Sam Battle, this extraordinary man, absolutely extraordinary man who started off as a, um, you know, as a, uh, he fought his way into to the uh, police department as the son of former slaves, no real education, um, formal education, very smart guy, tough guy, big guy. He fights his way in. Um, Is he a, a boxer, 6'2"? He was a boxer. 6'2", 40, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, his amazing adventures uh, because he's such a uh, an outsized personality. But he ends up as, um, you know, a, a um, close friend of Eleanor Roosevelt and a, as an aide to Fiorella LaGuardia, known to, you know, just about everybody in the police department and the political world he had. And uh, after he left the police department, he hired Langston Hughes to write his biography. Quite and, a, and it was quite never a hire. Quite a hire. And uh, for reasons that the book explains, it was never published. And um, it was my great good fortune to find it. And uh, without that manuscript, the one righteous man could never have been done. And a lot of righteous men who were black never got a chance to have their stories told by the major publishers of the That's city. right. After, after I had done the book, I went back and looked at the history of the major publishing industry, uh, Random House, Simon Schuster, all of them, um, what types of biographies they had done and autobiographies they had done of um, African Americans through the first half of the 20th century. And there were virtually none. Um, th those black lives just did not matter to them. But they mattered to you. Uh, they did. And they do. Yes. Arthur Brown from Copyboard, Editor-in-Chief and Publisher. Thanks for sharing your journalism, personal and private ride with us. You're quite welcome. Congratulations and uh, hope to see you again. You too, Alan. Joanna Wolp is the senior producer of our program and Doug Doyle is executive producer and Conrad Saguenetti is our engineer. And you've been listening to Conversations with Alan Wolper, audio biographies of people whose lives and ideas are right there on the cutting edge. So until we talk again, I'm Alan Wolper. Manhattan Recording and Mixing Services for Conversations with Alan Wolper was provided by Honey Mix, LLC.